uh, know by now that uh, um, a very famous um, theologian died this last week on Thursday, a man by the name of R.C. Sproul. Um, many of you know his name, and you have been impacted by his ministry and his teaching and his writings and his tapes, and maybe some of you haven't heard of his name, but it's, he's a prolific, was a prolific writer, and of course, he's still alive and in the presence of the Lord, so I suppose he still is and is, not just a was, but um, just someone who's an apologist, a writer, speaker, um, started his own ministry called Ligonier's Ministry. Um, I had the privilege of hearing him a number of times at conferences and churches and seminars, and and he had a huge impact on my understanding of how God's sovereign grace works in salvation. And so I am, I am um, deeply grateful for his influence on my life, as I know some of you are. And um, having heard that he passed at 78 years of age, I was, I was kind of a kind of caused me to just pause for a minute and ask what we often ask of ourselves when someone that um, we revere or somebody that we love. Um, passes on, and that is, what am I doing with my life, you know, is it, am I making, um, making the most of my life for the sake of the kingdom, and one of the things that struck me about R.C. Sproul is that, like, he passed away running the race. Um, I mean, he, just three weeks ago, he, he, he gave a message, an end-of-the-year message to everybody who was part of the Ligonier ministry saying, this is what we're going to do in January, and this is what we've laid out, like, he had plans to move forward at 78 years old, and and um, he was, how do you say it, hell-bent on continuing to run the race of Jesus until the end, and then he passed away three days ago. And uh, I asked myself the question, am I going to be found running the race near the end? And, uh, and I find that to be a very challenging um, example uh, for me and, of course, for us. Perseverance or endurance, one of those um, really important words. It's a, it's a challenge to live out, and yet at the same time, we celebrate it when we see it. We, um, when someone, we find out that someone has been married for 40 or 50, 60 or even 70 years, we oftentimes celebrate and applause like, wow, you made it. I can't believe you. Like, because marriage is not for the faint at heart, right? I mean, to learn what it means to love long term and to continue to forgive and not keep a record of wrongs and being patient, learn to be patient. When you find somebody who's completed that many years, you're just like, wow, like well done because it's it's oftentimes unheard of or not heard of as, as much as we'd like. As perseverance, it's one of those hard to live out but beautiful qualities. Even people who retire from, from service to our community, I can think of a teacher who spent four decades teaching fifth grade and, and retired after you know all of that service with, with a, um, a compensation package that's never going to make him rich. And you can't help but go, wow, four, four decades of investing lives into students, some of whom didn't want to be there. It's just like we, we have a, a reverence and a celebration for this thing called perseverance. And, and you should not be surprised to hear that it's important to the Christian life too. In fact, Jesus said that without perseverance to the end, without persevering in faith to the end, without finishing the race in faith and service, that there actually is no salvation in the end. He says this on a number of occasions in Matthew and, of course, the one I put on the screen behind me in, in Mark where he says, he basically says, the whole, if you're living out your Christian life, the world is going to be against you. You shouldn't be surprised by it. He says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but, and here's the word of endurance or perseverance, but the one who endures or perseveres, synonyms, to the end will be saved. That's how important perseverance and faith is to to our, our faith and to Christianity. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews was written to that end. It's, you need to persevere in the faith, faith and do not get let go. And the sense of the book is that you may forfeit the end. That's how important 
perseverance is. Now, you might be thinking, what in the world does perseverance have to do with the second advent of Jesus? I mean, there's the advent season. Well, a lot, actually. In fact, I want to tie together the second advent to this thing called perseverance and the importance of joy in it. And so I hope by the time we get to the end, you'll see how this ties together. And more importantly, not just to see how it ties together, but you'll be moved um, by the word and what God has done for you to actually take another step of perseverance and find yourself encouraged. That's my, my hope this morning. And so we draw our, our life, we draw our, our truth, our encouragement from the first, uh, excuse me, first letter um, that Peter wrote, St. Peter wrote, um, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Um, before we look at those texts, I, those verses, I just want to make two preliminary observations that I think are important for you to understand why I'm moving in this direction, why I've interpreted it this way. One is, like, if you might call it like the background, what's going on in these churches, because he's writing to a number of churches scattered throughout that would cause him or motivate him to take up a pen and write a letter to these churches. And what you find as you read through the letters, these people were, were these Christians, early Christians, were, were suffering. Um, persecution, but he... He says various trials, which means they were suffering a lot of other things too. So he's speaking to a community of believers like us who are experiencing different kinds of, of suffering. And so he writes with the motive or the aim of, through the truth, to encourage people to persevere. So that's like his aim. That's his, what he wants to, to accomplish through this book. So naturally, these verses are set in that context. So he writes these things so that we might, as believers, persevere to the end. That we might run the race and never stop until we take our last breath. So that's, that's why I'm, I'm moving in this direction of perseverance, which brings me to the second um, observation. And that is that Peter starts... In the same way that the Apostle Paul does. He doesn't start by telling us what to do. He doesn't say, so you're suffering. Buck up, little camper, and keep taking another step. That's not how he starts. He starts in the same way the Apostle Paul does. And that he starts by declaring in the form of blessing the great works of God on behalf of his, his people. And, and, and any doing of our own has to be predicated on the fact that God has massively worked on our behalf. In fact, the, the salvation that God the Father has worked through the Son on our behalf is so big and so grand that he tells us in the verses following verse 9 that like the prophets of old that were looking forward, they were inquiring and carefully trying to figure out like, what is this all about? Things so awesome that even angels long to look into. Like that's how big it is. And he wants first and foremost to encourage us on the mighty works of God. Because that's where our courage comes from. That's, that's where the strength for endurance comes from our understanding of how God has worked. Not by simply saying, persevere. So these truths are meant to enable us to persevere truths that are centered on God's great work on behalf of his people. So this is how he starts out. Again, keeping those two things in mind. It's a form of blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts Ephesians the same way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's how the early church expressed their blessing to the Father. But this isn't simply a blessing for blessing's sake. It's not a praise for praise's sake. It's, it's a way of praising God to remind the people listening of everything God has done on their behalf. So he praises God for, according to his great mercy, the fact that he has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he reminds us, by way of blessing God, that 
in a sheer act of mercy, in a sheer act of mighty and great mercy, which means not on the basis of anything we've done, not because we're smarter, better, or have more of a humble, sensitive spirit, but on the basis of God's great mercy alone, he has brought new life to the human heart. That is, he has, he has caused us to be born again. And, and the means by which he's done that is the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus broke out of the tomb, that was the primal first act of new creation. With infinite power to, to open hearts and lives to, to who God is and to, to change us from the inside out. That's, it's the power of resurrection applied to the believer to bring us to life. What I want you to notice is that, that God himself, God the Father, is the cause of that life. He, God, caused us to be born again. New spiritual life, new eyes, new desires. And that is supposed to encourage us because it reminds us that the beginning, the origins of our Christian faith do not begin with us. It begins with, with God. Or, to put it in a principle form, the perseverance is anchored in the divine beginning of our faith. He has caused us to be born again. He. Now that tends to run contrary to how we operate in the temporal world and sometimes how we think about Christianity. That is, in the in temporal world, we become something because we choose it. So... Whatever your vocation, whether it's a teacher or a fireman or a, a carpenter or a, a lawyer, you made choices to that end and you became a lawyer because you made choices. If you're a Boy Scout, because you paid your dues, you got the fancy little uniform and, and now you're a Boy Scout because you made a choice and, and that's not how Christianity works. Um, we did not sign on the dotted line and decide to become Christians as a first act but rather what we find is that God himself is the cause of our Christian faith, that he's the one that causes us to be born again. Listen to what the analogy or the, the, the logic of it. A, a baby does not choose to be born. A baby is born to choose. Our choice is not the cause of our salvation, but God's salvation is the cause of our choice. There's a necessary and wonderful place for choice. The rest of the book of 1 Peter is going to urge us to take responsible action, but based upon what God has already started. That is the first act of salvation. The initiation of salvation is always and first God's. Now, I realize that that, that offends our sense of um, inflated Freedom of choice. Indeed, God places a, a responsibility and a pressure on us to choose, but knowing first and foremost that our choices are based upon his first working. And I don't find this to be a problem. I actually find this to be not only comforting, but strengthening. And here's why. It means that your Christian faith did not begin with you. It did not begin with you going, this is me. 
It began with a sovereign act of infinite power when he said, come to life. And he saw a person like me, Dan Deckard, and he says, you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, I make you alive. Life comes from him, and then we experience it. And that, that should give us confidence. Like, this is how it started. You are a, you are a the reason you're a Christian is because you were born into it. You are, you are the, the, the product of a divine act of creation. And here's the thing. What God starts... He finishes. He who began a good work will complete it. The entire testimony of the entire Bible from beginning to end is a a comprehensive witness to the fact that God finishes what he begins. He began creation. He wanted to fill the earth with a people present himself in their midst. Satan decided he was going to try and derail it and uh, subvert our first ancestors, thinking somehow Satan would foil God's plan, but God's like, you ain't going to foil my plan. I'm going to recover and restore my plan through the second Adam, whose name is Jesus, and I am going to fill the earth with the people, and I'm going to dwell in their midst. I will finish what I start. So if he started your salvation, then you can be confident he's going to finish it. So that's why this first declaration of looking back at the beginning is, is supposed to enable you to find strength to persevere. He started this thing. He got the train going. He's going to bring it into the station. That's, that's one of the aspects that God has done that we find courage and strength in. But then after this, he tells us what we've been born again to, what this life longs for, and that is this Living hope. He says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So he's looked back to the past, to the origins of one's Christian life, and now he's looking forward into the future, to the second advent, when, God, when, when Christ comes and he fulfills what he started, completes what he started. Now we looked at this a little bit last week. I mean, it's, it's called a hope. It's called an inheritance. At the end of verse 4, it's called the salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. That's when Christ comes back. If you didn't, yeah, if, if you didn't hear last week's message out of Isaiah 65, I can encourage you to do it because it tells us what this, this grand vision, this future, this hope is. And that is um, a restoration of what God originally intended, where uh, a place where God's glory is fully and completely experienced by his people. Like, We get to experience it firsthand. We get to experience the face of Christ firsthand. Amongst a vast cloud of witnesses called the redeemed, we will be reunited as one people in a new creation that flourishes with life. And what he's saying is that we were born again to this living hope. That is, hope came to life in us for something bigger than this world. It's one of the proofs that that creation has happened in your heart. Is there as a longing for the world to come, a longing for the new world. It lives in you. It longs in you for it. And he describes it with these qualities like imperishable and um, undefiled and unfading. It's like those three words, you could, you could do a whole message just on those three words. I'm not. But it's like any, unlike anything here, you know, imperishable. It never, it never goes bad. It, it's never destroyed. It's, it goes on forever and ever and ever. It's undefiled, which means there's no stain. There's no imperfection. There's no flaw. There's no flaws of anxiety or worry or 
pain anymore. And then he says it's unfading. Can you imagine a world in which the beauty of something is just as fresh and new and wonderful 10,000 years after as it was the first day? I can't imagine a world like that because our world is, is precisely the opposite. I, my wife turned 21 this last month, and that was a joke. <laughs> and I brought her flowers. I brought her roses. She likes roses. And she saw them. She goes, oh, I love those roses. She likes roses, right? And um, put them in a jar, first clipped the stems, stuck them in a jar. And, you know, at first, those little, the faces of those roses were shiny, just smiling up at her. Within three days, they started to droop. And then they turned brown, and then they went out into the garbage, right? Women, women and men are quite different, aren't they? Like, I, I don't know of a single guy who wants flowers for his birthday. We want tools, and we want TVs, and we want car parts because they last longer. But the fact of the matter is everything droops, everything turns brown, and everything goes back into the garbage can. That's the world we live in now. But the world that Christ has died for, raised for, brought us a life for, this living hope is for a world where none of that exists anymore. Amen. And that is the hope. That's, that's, supposed to, that's what I'm living for. That. Not right here. Because it's really easy. It's really easy for us to become so present-oriented in life and think, and there are people who approach Christianity and the Bible and, and, and the gospel like this. It's like, well thinking out loud as somebody else. Marriage isn't doing too good. I probably ought to get back to church. You know, maybe Jesus can help me repair my marriage. Or, man, I'm doing a lousy job as a dad, and maybe if I get back to church and get my kids in church, God's going to help me be a better parent. Or um, things aren't going well financially, and I'm having problems inwardly about some addictions, and maybe I need to get back to church, and maybe Jesus can help me in the here and now. And and it's almost like Jesus is a, is a fix for present problems. And, and I just want to say that, like, knowing Christ today does affect your life today. But not always in the way you expect. I know the story of one lady who attends this church who she came to Christ and her husband left her high and dry with four kids. In that case, it didn't work out so well for her. But she still believes at the end of the day, it can't just be about the here and now. Christianity says there's a vision in the future. We're on a journey. We're headed there. We need to keep our eyes fixed on that. Otherwise, you're going to live for today, not for what's ahead. And if you think for a second that this whole idea of a new creation or Jesus coming back, a glorious future, is like some non-essential thing, like like an appendix at the back of a book. You know, you get through the book and you're like, yeah, I've got to read the appendix, right? That's how most of you read a book. You don't want to, to read any more than you have to. So you just read the book and leave the appendix to somebody else unless you really want to read the appendix. I just want to say that is not the case. Like, the whole trajectory of the Bible from beginning to end, the entire current of the Bible. You know, picture the Bible as a mighty Amazon river with a swift current. It is moving to one place. The entire current of the entire Bible moves in the current to the ocean, which is the new creation. It is, it is the big picture out there. It all moves there. And if we're outside that current, or we think, oh, this is just kind of a, like an appendix, 
We miss the whole flow and current of the Bible. It's like, it's taking us somewhere. Jesus died for our sins not to just leave us forgiven in a fallen world. He came to recreate the world. That's why he, he died. Died and rose again so that he could forgive us and then bring us into the perfection of things. It's everything. And if that hope is not there in your heart, if it's not living, then perhaps our, our focus is in the wrong place. It's, that's part of what he's declaring to us. Not only, remember, God brought you to life. He is the origin of your faith. And he's taking you someplace awesome, so keep your heart and eyes fixed there. And by the way, notice, he talks about God's control in that too. He says at the end, about after the imperishable, unfading, he says, kept in heaven for you. You know what that means? Kept in heaven by whom? By God himself. Right now you're entrusting people to uphold your 401k plan, your, your pension, or maybe your real estate investments for your future. All of which can literally go up in smoke or in a downturn. But this opening couple of verses is saying, that's not how it is with God. He is reserving it. He's preserving it. He's protecting it, which means it is an absolute guaranteed certainty. It's never going to be lost. You can trust him with it more than you can anybody else. So he brought you to life, and this is where he's taken you. He's kept it for you. All to help us persevere. But then the question becomes, well, yeah, but life is painful. We heard this morning from Pat and Roy's experience, and man, I don't know what it'd be like to lose a son or a daughter. Some of you have, and it's a deep pain. A person came in first service, says she hasn't been to church in a long time because she lost her son. And I told her, you know, I totally get it. It's a, it's a horrible thing, right, just to lose somebody. But that's not a reason, by the way, not to come to church. That's a reason to come to church and have some hope. You know what I'm saying? That this isn't all there is. So what about the struggles and what about the, the trials that we experience? Well, again, he gives us truth. I'm going to come back to the beginning of verse 5. But he, our perseverance banks on God's noble purposes, even in the pain and suffering he brings into our lives. And yes, I did say that, that he brings into our lives. Who, by the power God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. There is the second advent again. In this, that is your future hope, there's advent joy right there. You rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, I just want you to kind of underline that in your head, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that's uh, perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, the second coming of Jesus. He's saying there, there you're experiencing who he's writing to, and you out there, Parkway, experiencing various kinds of trials, which includes all kinds of different colors and kinds. From, in their case, persecution to maybe death, grief, disease, financial loss, unknowns, heartache, broken relationships. That all would be covered by this various trials. But he, he, is, he reminds us that we live in a world where God still exercises sovereignty and there's nothing he brings into his life, our lives, that is not by his own purpose or design for our good. Which brings us to the if necessary. In Greek, it's like, um, it must be, if it must be. I think he puts the if there 
Not to question the truth of it, but to say there's so many different experiences out there that if necessary in this case, if necessary in this case, the idea being it must happen for your own sake. God is custom designing your path for you. And it's not to give or make this life um, a vacation at an all-inclusive resort in Cancun. That's, that's not this life. But rather, he has an aim in the difficulties that he brings in this broken world to forge, refine, an honorable and glory-filled faith and trust. That's his aim. So we probably ought to have a mindset of the Christian journey in this life less like the vacation and more like boot camp. Right? I think I told you months ago I've, I enjoyed a stint where I was reading um, real-life works um, and books about Navy SEALs. I was just so awesome, and then I had to give them up because I felt like it was... It glorified death too much. But, uh, man, the heroics, and many of you have watched the movies and so forth, and just the heroics of what these guys do and the courage. Well, let me tell you that how that didn't happen. That didn't happen by these guys going to Club Med, sitting in a lounge chair by the pool, sipping on a margarita. They were forged into warriors because they were taken through tests and trials. They were subjected to things that would make them emotionally and mentally exhausted, expose them to nature in ways that would make them feel like they're ready to die, bring them to the brink of feeling like they're going to die, and then push them farther so that by the time they get done with the end of the training, they are forged warriors. God's aim for you as a Christian is not to make you a snowflake. his aim in your life is to forge a faith that will be able to withstand any and everything that comes your way so that even in the words of Job if God should slay me still I will trust in him that's a warrior faith but I want you to notice because you might be thinking yeah but I just don't feel that well that's the beginning of verse 5. He reminds us that even this process of our faith, like who by God's mighty power are being guarded through faith for his salvation. It's like he's got his arms, his hands around you. He will be there in the moments where you feel like it just can't take anymore. And it's in those moments the first words out of your mouth shouldn't be, Dan Deckard, you can do it. You can do it. The first words out of your mouth in a prayer ought to be, Lord, you are my rock and my refuge. I know that you have equipped me, you have guarded me, and you will take me there, so I'm trusting in you. That's the first thing. Now, let me tell you how I blew it big time in that respect. You know, my daughter's in college. She's now home. She's here. And I know this is going to embarrass you. It's okay. <laughs> so I asked her permission. She said, that's fine. So... Um, I don't know, two-thirds of the way through the semester, she has this class where she writes something, and then another person from her class, in this case a guy, comments on it and criticizes it, right? So this guy comments and criticizes it, and she, he accuses her of sin. Like, he attacks her, like, 
like her morally on the basis of, of what she wrote. And I read what she wrote, and I, I, wrote, I read what he wrote, and I'm just like, are you flipping kidding me? I mean, honestly, it's just like, this is beyond Phariseeism. Like, this is, a, this is an attack. My daughter, and my, she, she calls me, and she's in tears. She goes, Dad, I think my f- first half of my freshman year is just ruined. Right? And so I, I said, listen, daughter of mine, right? I'm like, you don't let a guy like this, some punk with, a, with an attitude, don't let him have power in your life to derail you. Like, you just got to keep going, right? So far, so good. But then I went on to say something else, which I am ashamed of. Don't judge. <laughs> I'm so embarrassing you didn't say this. I said it for a service. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, Allie, you're a deckard. And we Deckers persevere. Remember where you come from. Now you laugh. Now here's, that is horrible parenting. Because not only is it intrinsically prideful, Deckers have no more staying power than a Smith or a Jones or anybody else because we're a broken family. Not only is it intrinsically prideful, but I'm telling her to believe in the flesh. And in that moment, I became a false teacher to my daughter. Rather than doing what Peter did, he's like, I should have said, that's what I should have said, is I should have said, the Lord is your rock and your redeemer. This guy can't touch you. He guards your heart. You take refuge in him and you keep going. He's the reason you keep going. Way better. That's gospel, right? It just goes to show that you can have correct theology in your head and have a jacked-up practice in theology, right? Don't do that to your kids. Um, I'm sorry, sweetheart. Anyway, that's what he's doing. It's like he's rooting our, our, our perseverance in, in, in God, working through our circumstances and holding us, right? And then he, one final um, word to help us in our perseverance is it's just this it's sustained by this very vital, present tense relationship with Jesus. This is some of the most relationally joy-packed um, words written. He says, though you have not seen him, that is Jesus, they're just like us. They never saw him. And even though they never saw him, they never got to touch the scars, they never got to hug him, they never got to hear him audibly. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's the end, right? I mean, this is a, a, a vibrant relationship with, with Christ. That's, those are present tense. You love him now, even though you don't see him. You trust him now, even though you don't see him. And you experience a joy in him now that you can't even articulate that's full of glory. That is, God is glorified in the amount of joy that you have in your relationship with him, despite your circumstances. Now, you might read that and go, is that possible? I don't think this is rhetorical exaggeration. Like, wow, he's blowing things out of proportion. No. 
They actually love Jesus because he first loved them. They actually trust in Jesus because they are convinced that the cross and resurrection are enough to bring them home. And they are actually experience, experience the joy of their salvation that just can't quite be expressed in words. And he's, re, um, he's reminding them of this to reinforce that this is how Christianity really should be. This kind of experience of loving him and trusting him and finding my joy in him should not be the exception, but this should be the norm. And if it's not the norm, then, then something's happened. I know it can be the norm, not only because of what the scripture says. I remember 2004 going to India to a place called Hyderabad, and there was a, a, a Bible school there. It was a college, and there was three of us from Parkway who went. And the guy who ran the school told us that most of their students were converts from Islam and from Hinduism, which put them, in terms of Islam, in jeopardy or danger from their own family. So they... they had to leave their family to come to Christ. Like, that's a huge amount of sacrifice. To be in this school, to be trained as a missionary and a pastor. And we went into this chapel where these converts had come, where they had realized the grace they have from the Father through Christ the Son, and they're forgiven, and we watched them worship. And their joy was palpably real. It wasn't synthetic, it didn't need any kind of emotional boost from an orchestra. They were worshiping the Lord because of the truths that we just saw. And in that moment, I had just have to tell you, in my American Christianity, I felt embarrassed. Man, you guys have something that we don't have in the States. And something that has to be recovered a vibrant, vital relationship with Jesus that knows that he, he brought about my salvation from the beginning. He's taken me somewhere wonderful. He has a purpose for me in my suffering, suffering and he's going to guard me all the way. And I am going to nurture a relationship with God that is full of love, full of trust, and full of joy. The problem is, if we're not there, it could be for any number of reasons. Maybe we've never been born again. Or if we have, maybe we've become so focused on creating our own all-inclusive life that we find ourselves more attracted to here than there. And so the joy that the Lord has given to us about what he's done and where he's taking us has been sapped by our own materialism. Or maybe it's just we've become so darn busy that work takes you away from worship the stress of, of making money takes you away from personal worship of Christ, and as a result, your relationship is dried out because you're just too distracted by your own busyness and you've lost the heart. If, if you're in one of those places, it's like, yeah, I've kind of lost that. This Advent season is the time to like come back. It's to say, I need to make changes. I am, I'm like a desert. I'm... I'm, I'm I'm exhausted spiritually, and, and this verse has no, has no reality in my life. And this Advent season is a season to say, all right, Lord, I want this back. And to come back and say, please help me 
Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because when Christ becomes your supreme joy, like he's more important than even family. And that's what these students taught me. That Jesus to them was more important than family. Then you know what? Someday, when we do get to see him, it is going to be cataclysmically awesome. And the rivers and the trees and the mountains and the redeemed will clap their hands with joy and say, what I hope and sing, joy to the world. The Lord is come. I just pray. Let's let this be the heart of our relationship with the Lord built on these awesome truths so that we might persevere in this journey towards what is at the end of this massive river. And that is a new world. Amen. Strengthen us, Lord, in our weakness. Intensify our faith. If we become too busy or too attracted to this life, I just pray that these moments would be equipped with your power to turn from it and, and to make those changes necessary to make you first, first and foremost once again. Thank you for the gift of worship, and may our joy, even if it's diminished, may it be increased as we worship you now in song. In Christ's name, amen.